Turn this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, it is truly unto you that belongs the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. We pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. We come this morning to one of the most famous passages in all of God's word, the Lord's Prayer. It has been prayed for over 2,000 years. And somewhere in the world, it is being prayed right now. Because churches all across the globe pray this prayer all throughout the Lord's Day. This is our first example that we read in Scripture of Jesus instructing His followers in prayer. It can be an example of how we miss an important part of Scripture, though, because we are so familiar with it. This, the 23rd Psalm, passages like that, it's like for someone who is a gourmet cook who makes a beautiful dessert and then puts it under a glass to be admired. I can remember several years ago at Christmas, my grandmother received a gingerbread house complete with icing and M&Ms and everything. I was about eight. I had a very strong appreciation for that gingerbread house. I wanted to increase my appreciation for that gingerbread house by being able to partake of it. Then I was very firmly instructed by my aunt who had given my grandmother the house, that is not for eating. That's for looking. And I said, but there's a lot of other things that we can look at that we can't eat. This we can eat. But no, it was put under a very heavy glass. And I was threatened with certain disciplinary measures to not touch that gingerbread house. And then it happened about 15 years later that that gingerbread house was finally um, taken apart. And I was 23. I was very sad to see that gingerbread house, although I didn't have any desire to eat it because it was quite old, but it stayed looking good. Well, the reason I tell you that story 
is because we can do that to the Lord's Prayer and to other famous passages of Scripture instead of taking them for what they are meant to be, which is instruction, which is learning. And instead of in taking them in, we can just put them behind a glass and say, look at how pretty this prayer is. We, we come across it all the time. Every day we probably say it regularly. And even though we do these things, it still ends up just being something that we admire and we don't actually partake of it. We need to partake of the Word if we are going to receive anything from it. So let us not put the Lord's Prayer behind a heavy glass for fear of breaking it. I said last week that some have feared in the past that if you say the Lord's Prayer too much, it will turn into vain repetition. It will You will empty it of its meaning. However, using something regularly doesn't mean that it will be vain or that it will be empty. Instead, we should take it and appreciate it for what it is meant to be. Jesus used this as a method of instruction for his followers. He said, In this manner, therefore, pray ye. So, right after Jesus had talked about not using vain repetition, and we'll briefly say what that is in a minute, but He in turn gives His disciples an explicit prayer that they should pray. Now in this prayer we are taught what our priorities ought to be. So to pray this way, if it is done the right way, it will shape who we are and who we become. Jesus contrasted this method of prayer with what is common among those who were pagans in his day. Well, you see, when he said in verses 7 and 8 to not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, vain repetitions is not really the best translation of that word. Because, remember, up to that point, he had been talking about things that the Pharisees do. But here, he doesn't say the Pharisees. He talks about what the Gentiles, what the heathen do. And I even myself, last week when I mentioned this, I just lumped it all together. When this week, as I took a closer look at that phrase, vain repetition of the heathen, that's something that those who are outside the faith would do. They would rattle on and on and on and on and on just because they liked being heard. Well, Jesus is saying it's not the amount of words that you use. It is what is behind those words. Now this, I will say, this is not an excuse for us to pray for ten seconds every day and that be it and say, look, Jesus said don't use vain repetition. So I'm afraid if I pray more than, you know, just a few seconds that I'll, don't worry about that. Our prayer life, though, should be sincere. It should not be based on an elaborate vocabulary. It should be based on honoring 
and desiring what the Lord Himself desires. Now, when Jesus gave instruction for prayer, He's giving us something that will shape us. Not just something that we are to desire, which we should desire. But if you pray something, if you communicate in a certain way long enough, you will in turn be changed by your communication. Every person you meet, if you communicate with that person at all, you are different and you will be different than you were before. Whether it's just a few moments of conversation or whether it is a lifetime of conversation. Now, of course, those that you speak with the longest and you have the most communication with, they have the most effect on you. Someone that you just happen to pass by on the street and you strike up just a brief conversation with that person, yes, your life will, even in just a small way, be somewhat different. But not nearly as different as the person that you marry when you talk, communicate with them. When we communicate with God, which is what prayer is, it's communication with God, when we communicate with Him it's not only we're asking Him to do certain things for us, but the way that you communicate affects who you are. What you say, the desires that you have, will change as you pray. We're told by David in Psalm 37, For delight yourselves also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, if we really believe that, that's not just even as recently as yesterday I was speaking with a relative of mine and relative used that verse about delighting yourself in the Lord because there's something that this person really wants. He said, well, maybe if I do my Bible reading more and I pray more, the Lord will see fit to give me what I want. It was not a bad thing that they were wanting necessarily. But that's not the meaning of the verse. It's not you're going to do God these certain favors. And then He will in turn do you certain favors. Everything you have is given by His grace. You don't deserve, even after you trust in Him, you don't deserve things based on your abilities or based on your accomplishments. Because Paul said that he is willing to count his righteousness as filthy rags. Jesus told a story in Luke about a servant who had done all these many things for his master and still at the end of the day he said, you're still unprofitable. The servant said, I'm still an unprofitable servant. So it's not that the Lord gives us based on what we do for Him, but the fact that when we ask for things, over time, if we are asking not just because this is something I want and I want to get it, and so 
Hopefully God will give it to me. If that's the only reason you ever pray, if your prayer is only about please give me such and such, then your prayer is not accomplishing, your prayer life is not accomplishing what it should. Praying in the way that Jesus tells us to pray will cause us to see God and His work in a more grand and glorious way. It will expand how we look at His world. It will cause us to decrease and Him to increase. But that means we must be willing to submit our prayer lives to Him. Sometimes we have an idea that my prayer life is my business. And no one or no thing can critique the way that I pray. And, of course, we shouldn't go around critiquing people's prayers. But we have, as young Christians, all of us have a lot of maturing to do, right? Well, as young Christians, we need to grow up in our prayer life. Whether you've been praying and your prayer life is rich and full, or whether you've only been praying for a short time, there's a ways to go. And we must be willing to grow up in our prayers. We must be willing to submit the way that I pray to the way Jesus teaches me to pray. Because He is, after all, He's not only their Master and their Teacher, He's our Master and our Teacher. So we must submit the way we pray to the way He instructs us to pray. And that, that is true submission. That means sometimes learning that the way I want something is not the way He wants something and changing the, what I want to what He wants even when I don't feel like it. So, this morning, instead of focusing just on the meaning of each element of the Lord's Prayer, which we'll touch on, I want us to see how the Lord's Prayer and how His teaching instructs us in our prayers. How does this prayer, how should it inform us? How should it teach us? And we will go through... We'll not spend a lot of time on each of these, but I believe it's about eight elements of the Lord's Prayer. First of all, we are taught that God is our Father. We are taught that God is our Father. And we should go to Him as a Father. God is our Father and we should go to Him as our Father. In Psalm 89, verse 26, David wrote, He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. He's speaking, it's the Lord speaking through David here. Now Psalm 89 is about the Oh, I'm, uh, 
sorry, it was not David, it was Ethan the Edrite. But still, it's a psalm about God's covenant with David. God's promises to David. And one of the things that he says that he will do is that David's offspring would cry, Thou art my father. The idea of God as father was it was common in the Old Testament. It, we find it here in Psalm 89. We also find it in Psalm 68, verse 5, where it said, A father to the fatherless is our God. But in the New Testament, that is where the idea of God as our Father comes into much greater depth. You see, in the Old Covenant, God was the Father to the Jews. They were His people. But in the New Covenant, He is the Father to all who believe. As Paul will write in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only that which is of the law, but to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So God's promises are not only to those who were his physical offspring, but, they're all, but Paul's saying that the promise is to all who believe. So that means if you believe, then God's promise is to you, and he is your father. Paul ties the fatherhood of God in with our being free from bondage to sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, said, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The term Abba, Father is the equivalent to our uh, word, Daddy. It means not just a distant father, but one to whom I'm very close. It's like a child who would go and crawl to his father's lap. And Paul is not only telling the Romans that they have this relationship to God, but that they no longer have to fear. You're no longer in bondage. You're not bound. Because in the verses above that, he talked about the fact that we don't live after the flesh. You don't live according to the law of God in the way that the Jews did. Excuse me. Now you live in freedom because the Spirit is leading you. And because the Spirit is leading you, therefore He is the one drawing you to the Father. Your relationship to God is what frees you from sin. The fact that He is now your father and you are his son, you are his daughter means that you no longer have to walk in sin. And because this is true, we can pray, as Jesus said, we can go to him not as one who is so far off and distant that it means nothing to us or so that we can, we have to be very straight laced and formal, but that we can come to him with anything at any time. Because He is our Dad. We have a tendency to go to others in times of distress. When we're finding ourselves in the midst of turmoil, we like to talk 
to someone. And that's not wrong. But the first one that, to whom we should go is God. So He is our Father. And we should communicate with Him as our Heavenly Father. The second thing that we learn in the Lord's Prayer is that our greatest delight should be to sanctify God's name in the earth. Our greatest delight should be to sanctify God's name in the earth. The second part of the prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. That's not just saying that your name is holy, which it is. We sang earlier today, Holy, 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 which is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he heard the seraphim crying to God, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah saw that, and Jesus, of course, had seen that in the past, and He is not praying, or He's not just confessing that God's name is holy. He's praying. He's asking the Father to hallow, to make His name known and sanctified across the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 111, verse 9, we read, it says, Holy and reverend is your name. The desire that God's name would be set apart in the earth should be our main desire. Everything else should take a back seat to that. Just as we sing in our hymnal, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art Thou my best thought by day or by night. That should be what we desire. When I say that His name should be sanctified, a lot of times we think of sanctified as in me becoming more like Him. That the process that He brings us through to make us more like Him. But this sanctified, the word sanctified just means set apart. When you take something that was used for one thing and now it is on a totally new plane. It is something lifted up. It is something honored. And Jesus is praying to His Father that God's name, the Father's name, would be honored and exalted above all names. And we're told that that will happen. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of whom? God the Father. So this should consume us. This is the whole reason that Paul wrote theology. Because he was consumed with the desire for God's name to be exalted in the earth. There was zeal in his heart for God. Remember what Paul did before he was a Christian. He killed Christians. But he didn't kill Christians just because he was, you know, just a, he really liked to, to commit murder. You know, he didn't kill Christians because he got a charge out of people dying. He killed Christians because he believed that they were a menace to the true faith, Judaism. But then 
the Lord Himself came to Paul on the road to Damascus. He was blinded and he heard Jesus speak to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So then that zeal that Paul had to eradicate the earth from the pest of the disciples of Jesus Christ was now transformed into a desire to exalt Jesus Christ. Now we don't all have the strong personality of Paul. We're not called to go to various parts of the world and proclaim the gospel. But we should be filled with a desire to exalt Him and for His name to be lifted up wherever we are and in whatever we do. When Paul was writing his letter again to the Romans, he was talking in Romans chapter 11 about how Israel of old was cut out of the olive tree and that the Gentiles, that is we, you and I, were grafted in. But, and then he, in the middle of his talking about that, he just he becomes so full of the glory of God that he breaks out in verse 33 and says, Oh, the depth of the riches, growth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. He is exalting Christ because of the work that He has done. So Jesus teaches that, that in our prayers, that should be our desire as well. And if it's not, we need to change. Our desires need to be conformed to His. Number three, the third thing we learn from this prayer is that the purpose of Jesus' coming was to establish His kingdom. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to establish His kingdom. He said, after He said, Hallowed be Thy name, His prayer is, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. What kingdom is this? Well, it's the kingdom prophesied throughout the Old Testament. We're told many times in the Psalms, how the seed of David was going to inherit his throne. That seed is not just Solomon, but in a greater and more grand way, it's the Lord Jesus himself. He would ascend to the throne of David, and he would reign forever. This is prophesied also in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So this was a prophecy of Jesus coming to inherit the kingdom from his Father. That's why he came. You can read all throughout Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and then you can read in Acts that the message that Jesus proclaimed was the kingdom of God. Now here in our church we have heard that several times, which I'm thankful for, and it's not something that probably we need to go into great detail on. But just as Jesus knew, and Jesus was praying to His Father that the kingdom would come, we should pray the same thing. Now, we know that His kingdom has been established to some extent in the earth. We know that. But we are still today in a battle to see the kingdom demonstrated, to see the reign of Christ demonstrated in the realms of the earth. When you look around, 
you look at the news, you read the paper. Just go on Twitter for a couple of minutes. You see there are plenty of things going on that don't demonstrate the reign of Christ. There's a lot of people doing things that don't demonstrate the reign of Christ. So, what is His kingdom? Well, His kingdom, just this is not a very thorough definition, but just a, to shorten it, His kingdom is the rule and reign of the victorious Christ over His enemies. And that victory is one in which we also are made partakers. So we partake in the reign of our Lord. And there are many things that we are called to do to assert the kingdom. But it must begin with prayer. Our desire should be that the kingdom would come. Hear that closely. The prayer is that the kingdom of Christ would come, not that the kingdom of Christ would hurry up and go. I say that because sometimes I think we get the, the idea that the kingdom is something that really we're never going to see. We're not going to see it demonstrated except in the fact that we'll have you know good relationships with other Christians and that's about it. Now Jesus' prayer is that the kingdom of God would come and would be established and would grow. And we must pray in faith that that would happen. You know, there's a difference between praying something that you really don't think there's a snowball's chance in the middle of July in Mobile, Alabama of happening and something that you really believe not only can happen but will happen. Okay? Now, can snow fall in Mobile in July? It is, yes, scientifically it is possible. I don't ever know of any record of that happening. But, I'll tell you this, I predict that by January we will have had a few frosts in our area of the state. Okay? How do I know that? It sure doesn't feel like it right now outside. You go outside and just stand for a few minutes and you start you just break out in a sweat all over. But I know it's going to happen and I I believe with all my heart that it will happen in January because we know the patterns of the weather. Well, if you stretch that out a lot, we know the patterns of what will happen because we read God's Word. And even though it doesn't feel like right now that the kingdom of Christ is going to be demonstrated, yet we know what He said. He said His kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's small and it will grow. And it becomes greater than all the herbs to the point that even the birds of the air nest in its shade. Our faith 
is not in something that we don't really think will happen, but we know it's possible. Our faith is in something that we know will happen because God's Word said it. So therefore, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we should indeed pray in faith and in expectation. It should not be just something that we assume, but that we pray for again in hope and in faith. The fourth thing that we learn in Jesus' prayer is that God's ways are greater than our ways. God's ways are greater than our ways. And this is particularly in, and I don't want to make this point something that's super long, but especially when it comes to establishing His kingdom and His reign, there's a lot of things that He does that don't make sense. Jesus came to reunite heaven and earth. Why do I say that? Because, again, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is where? In heaven. So, in the realm of the spiritual world where Jesus has already defeated the powers of darkness, He has defeated sin, we are free, we are living in the new creation, that is the heavenly realm. It's real. It's not something that's just because we can't see it that we, we don't really think that we're going to have anything to do with it until we die. No, Jesus said for us to pray that His will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So we expect, we believe that heaven and earth are again being reunited. He is bringing the new creation into the old. Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The exact literal translation of that is new creation. So, if you're in Christ, you're living in new creation. You are new creation. But we do not get the privilege. It's not really a privilege, but we're not allowed to determine how He brings His kingdom to pass. And we are taught to pray, not only Thy kingdom come, which we all desire to see the reign of Christ more manifest in the earth, but we don't get to do that on our terms. We also pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Thy will be done is a prayer of submission. It is asking the Lord to bring something about even though it is hard for us at times. Think of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. He is in the garden. He is sweat drops of blood because He's in anguish over what He's about to go through. Yet He said in verse 42, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will but Thine be done. Now sometimes the Father displays the superiority of the kingdom of Christ over that of men. And it's plain to see. An example of that would be 
when the Lord would give David victory over his enemies. When David fought Goliath, Goliath did not have a chance. Not a chance. When Israel went into Jericho, was Jericho a very a fortified city? Was it a strong city? Yes and yes. But Jericho didn't have a prayer. At least of the true God. They fell. God the Father demonstrated His power plainly in the eyes of the wicked. Yet there are other times when He displays His work in an upside down or what Martin Luther called a left-handed victory. The resurrection, or excuse me, the crucifixion of Christ was a left-handed victory. The hope of all Israel rested on Jesus and He died. He was killed because He was in the way. He was a nuisance. He was getting in the way of the tight dealings that some of the Jews had with some of the local Roman officials and the Jews didn't want anybody coming in messing up their plans. So they killed the Lord of glory. And it looked like the wrong side had won. However, the wrong side hadn't won. The wrong side ended up committing suicide when they killed Jesus. The victory of Christ was accomplished, but it was accomplished in a way that looked like a loss. Well, that's the way sometimes that this goes. And when we pray, Thy will be done, we are praying for the Lord to do whatever He wants with our lives or the lives of those around us, even when it's not what we would physically want. We're asking Him to bring about things that could be painful for us for the short term, but we know, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, is, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It didn't look like Abraham was making a smart decision when he pulled up stakes, left his family, going somewhere that he didn't even know. As we sang this morning, he did that by faith, but it didn't look like it was a very wise decision. Yet, he was obedient, and the Lord made him a powerful nation and made him a glory to all the nations. Because Abraham was obedient by faith. If we're going to display the reign of Christ over us, we must display submission to Him in the areas that we don't like. Otherwise, we're not living in new creation. We're living in the old. We're walking by sight rather than by faith. Next, we must, we learn in this prayer that we must rely on the Father to supply our needs. We're to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Now why do we pray that when probably any of us can go home right now 
and we can open the refrigerator and find food. Now, granted, it may not be exactly what you want. You might prefer ham. There's only turkey. You might want homemade chocolate chip cookies, and there's only Keebler chocolate chip cookies. Something like that. You know, our, our, our petty little wants may not all be met, but we have food. So why do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Is that just a cultural thing? Because the people that Jesus was talking to, they didn't have the food supply was not nearly as good. No. Your needs today are met through the power of the Holy Spirit just as much as the needs of believers back then were met by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have no more ability or right to claim strength for yourself and provision for yourself than anyone. Because everything you have can be taken away. It is the hand of God that has blessed us with abundant food supply. The hand of God can take it away. So we should still acknowledge to God, we should pray to Him that everything I have is because Your grace has given it to me. We should live in the knowledge that, as Paul said in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all my needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He supplies those needs, spiritual and in this case physical, because of the work of Christ And when we give thanks for our food, we're not just going through again some rote exercise. We're saying, thank you for giving me what only you can give me. This section of Jesus' prayer should provide us with humility when we observe what all we have. Because everything we have is from Him. Next, our desire should be to forgive as we've been forgiven. Our desire should be to forgive as we've been forgiven. After we pray to give us this day our daily bread, he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the only section that he elaborates on after the prayer. He will talk about the importance of forgiveness, which we will probably look at more detail on Tuesday night. But for now, I want us to know that this prayer isn't just asking God for forgiveness, which is important. But it's asking Him to forgive us as we forgive others. In other words, use the same standards and the same measures in applying to me. Forgive me in the same way that I forgive other people. That is a lofty prayer. This is, this is how we know that Jesus was teaching us how to pray. Because He didn't need forgiveness. He never sinned. But we certainly do. We sin against God all the time. We've probably, all of us have sinned in some way or another since we've been in this room. Don't worry, I'm not saying I know what it is for you. I do have a few ideas for myself. But we've sinned and we need forgiveness. And because we need forgiveness, that should keep us always attuned to the fact that we must forgive others. This is the way of life. 
I mean, we you might think it's, it, it, it should be your goal to try to keep from being hurt. Nobody can live like that unless you go off and live by yourself. No, your desire should be to learn forgiveness and to be able to practice it better and better. Then we learn that only God can protect us from sin and evil. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. In Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8, the psalmist said, Now know I that the Lord saveth His anointed. He will hear Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. So how is it that David is protected? It is not by the hand of his military strength. And the same goes for you, no matter how many weapons you may have at your house. And it even goes for our country. No matter that we are the strongest nuclear power in the world, and we could eliminate the other countries of the world several times over with our nuclear abilities, the Lord can bring us low if He sees fit. And I pray that we will submit to Him before He must bring us to that level of judgment. But when we pray, we should pray understanding that unless the Lord delivers us, we have no deliverance. Unless He blesses us to escape not only from physical harm, but from temptations and snares. It has to be from Him. We have to have His grace to be protected from these things. We must rely on the power of God and not on ourselves. This prayer teaches us humility. Because we see that only God can bring His kingdom about. Only He can grant us our physical needs. Only He can bring protection from those who would destroy us. And then, the last thing we learn is that unto God, our Father, belongs all glory, honor, and power now and forever. Jesus ends this prayer by saying, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He's ascribing here to God, just as He began by calling God His Father in an intimate and close way, now He has broadened the way that He addresses His Father and He says, unto you, it is to you and to you alone that everything that is good should be attributed. Yours is the kingdom. To you belongs all of the work that you are doing in this earth. The fact that the kingdom of God will grow is unto you. By you, for you, and from you. And the power. The means by which all this is accomplished and the glory, the majesty and the attribution of praise and honor, all of it belongs to Him. 
But this prayer, brothers and sisters, will not shape us if we only spout it off like it means nothing. If we just blithely go to the, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, and, and it just roll off our tongue, it won't accomplish the purpose of teaching us how to pray. If you memorize it and don't meditate on it, it's like preparing a meal and staring at it. You've accomplished nothing if it's only something that you've stuck in your head. This prayer must become a part of who you are. And you must pray it thinking about what you're asking Him to do and submitting what you formerly asked to what He desires for you to ask. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that You are the Lord. You reign over the nations, and to You belongs all glory, honor, and power. I pray that You would now cause us to humble ourselves in Your sight. Change the way that we pray that it would not be selfish, but that it would be glorifying and desiring of You to do what only You can do. We ask this now because of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior. Amen.